0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff and with me today are my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, you guys. I am, as always, quarantined from the other hosts. Aaron, you've been uh, been working, pre-planning this quarantine for some time. You're ready for this quarantine. You you could say I called that this would happen and that uh, everyone would be soon podcasting from their own basement.
1: <laughs> uh, hey, th- you guys,
0: this is an exciting show. Evan, who who's your guest? This week's guest, who I have wanted to have on for a really long time, is Jad Abumrad. He is, if you don't know, the longtime co-host of Radiolab Lab. And as well as uh, some spin-off shows like More Perfect. And more recently, he launched a new show towards the end of last year, Dolly Parton's America, which I was pretty obsessed with. And I went into WNYC to interview him there where he works. And uh, we did it twice. We did it two times. Uh, the first time didn't work out exactly right. There was a bit of a tape glitch a very Radiolab-ish tape glitch, which resulted in a 40-minute loop of one sentence. What was the sentence? The sentence was something like, uh, I think he says it in here, it's something like, you know what I really love? <laughs> <laughs> fetting, fetting. What a beautiful loop. But he <laughs> was amazing to talk to. He had a lot of reflections on many years at Radiolab, how they approach things, how he approached Dolly Parton's America, how he reported it, Also, the longtime Radio Lab co-host, Robert Krowich, is uh, just retiring, so he had a lot to say about that. And it was the conversation that I had hoped to have with him for many years. I'm glad we waited, man. This was the right time. I believe so. Uh, This is also the kind of time where you need to keep in touch with people without necessarily seeing them face to face. Do it with a newsletter from MailChimp. They are the people who bring you this show, and we thank them. Now here's Evan with Jad Abumrad.
1: Um, I feel like I should apologize to you formally on the record for uh, dragging you in a second time. Well, you're technically dragging me in a second time, but this is me dragging you in because we <laughs> screwed up the recording for you. We
0: could call it even, because I dragged you onto the podcast the first time, and now you're dragging me back. As yes. If it just wasn't enough for you.
1: No, it wasn't. I didn't actually <laughs> say what I wanted to say. Turned out I only said the phrase, you know the thing I love, and it looped for 25 minutes.
0: It was actually, a, in some way, a perfect recording flaw, that <laughs> looping is a part of your sound wizardry, and prior to this incident, I did think of you as kind of, a wizard of all Prior. things sound. <laughs> well, I'm glad to kill <laughs> killed the mystique. Um, so, Jad, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. One thing that's happening right now that it was not happening when I was here last time, uh, but it's now very much on everyone's minds, is that coronavirus, mm. or COVID-19, is spreading in the United States, yeah. and is that the kind—I was thinking back to all these Radiolab episodes— Patient Zero was one where Mm. you cover the origins of the AIDS epidemic. You've had multiple episodes about viruses and how they work and different types of viruses. And does a little, like, rotating light start going here and people say, okay, what are we – we have to do something on this. This is us. This is – or is this a thing that's too on the news that you would stay away from?
1: You sort of have both thoughts at once, really. I mean, there's a lot of layers to this particular moment. Like, there's the fact of the pandemic as it's unfolding – and then there's the, everyone's reaction to it. And both of those things are interesting. And you think, huh, can we do something on either of those things? So we have had those thoughts. Actually, uh, one of maybe my best science reporter, Molly Webster, might end up diving in and doing a thing on corona. So you do have that thought. You also you do have the other thing, which is like, what do we bring to it? What do we add to it? Like, you really do have to come at it at a perpendicular in some way. I think about it in terms of this, also in terms of the election, like what's useful? feels like a really important question. So I'd want it to be that, you know.
0: Well, let's let's talk about something you did do already, the Dolly Parton's America, because mm. I'm interested in the way where that fell on the sort of this is entertaining to me versus this feels like this could be useful in this, this moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, obviously, we live in an America right now that we all like to talk about as being, like, more divided than at any point in our lifetimes, and that's probably true. We're about to go into one, and three years ago, we went through an election cycle that was the most vitriolic that I can remember. I mean, you, if you study American history, you go back and you see that like there were like duels and various things. So it's never been like a great situation there, but it was really bad in 2016. And I remember like feeling as all Americans did at that point, which is that this feels horrible, but it also doesn't feel complete. It doesn't feel like the true vision of America. This isn't all that America is right now. And then I remember around the time when the presidential election was heating up, Dolly Parton was on tour, and she was doing 67 dates that year, and she came through Queens. And I remember, uh, first of all, it was kind of a shock to me that the way everybody here got so excited when she came to town, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, having grown up in the South, I, of course understood the power of Dolly, but I sort of stupidly thought it was more of a southern regional thing. And to see all of these godless New Yorkers like just get so excited. But what was was even more of a surprise was that they started telling me stories about what a crazy, beautifully strange alternate vision of America exists at that show. Because you've got You got the liberals, you got the, like, hipsters, but you also have, like, men in trucker hats, you got men in drag. Men in unironic trucker hats. Unironic trucker hats. You uh, you have Republicans next to Democrats, this multiracial audience. You've got all of these different slices of America just, like, jammed together, and they're totally polite. It was a very interesting juxtaposition to think, like, split screen in your mind between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the debates on one hand and then that picture on the other. And it Mm -hmm. felt like interesting to me, like, oh, I want to understand how she makes that space. How does one person seem to appeal to everybody at this moment when almost no one else is doing that? Um, it also felt to me personally like, oh, this is a chance for me to look back on where I came from. Because Dolly is the patron saint of the South. You know, I went to Dollywood every year on a class trip. It was just a thing we did. And, uh... I remember going there and, and, and being super into the whole place, but the whole, like, there's a whole layer of Tennessee nostalgia. There's log cabin this and log cabin that. And I just remember feeling a little bit like, yeah, that's that's not for me. Or it's not meant for me, you know? So I suffice to say, I had a lot of complicated feelings about the South, and I thought this would be an interesting lens through which to look back on that stuff. And... Uh, this incredible professor, Lynn Sacco at the University of Tennessee, had been teaching a history class and had gotten all of these incredibly bright students from across Appalachia and had had the sort of insight that like Dolly is a historical figure. Let's use her as a way to look at American history at large. And uh, when we sat in on her class, that's when I was like, oh, there's so much more here. There's so much more to, to do and to say. But then, of course, you
0: had to get her, and the story of how you got, <laughs> yes. got to her is in and of itself, it's so strange to me. Like, it still seems,
1: yeah. even yeah. after
0: listening to the whole series, I'm still stuck on this idea that even as you were thinking, hey, this would make a good show, you had this kind of, like, thing in your pocket.
1: Yeah, that's just the thing I haven't said yet, <laughs> which is... Um, Strange twist of fate. I mean, 2013, she gets into a car accident in Nashville, minor accident, uh, is taken to Vanderbilt Hospital, and my dad, who is a doctor, happens to be on call, and happens to be one of the people who gives her medical advice, and then they just become friends. It's the weird, the one of the stranger things. I never actually believed it. This is one of the. It's when I think of back on this whole project, I don't somehow go to that first because. It was only after I got interested in Dolly that I then started to think, does my dad really know Dolly Parton? And then I asked him, I I hit him up, I was like, you said you know Dolly. And it turned out at this point they were actually like friends. They were like real friends. So I, I twisted his arm to give me an introduction. And he did. And honestly, up until the moment that we walked into her compound and she came walking out of a side door. Up until that moment, I doubted that he actually knew her. <laughs> but then she walked into the room and I was like, oh my God, that is Dolly Parton. That's the person I grew up seeing on billboards, seeing on late night TV talk shows. And she looks exactly like she does on TV, except smaller and right there in front of you. Had your dad, do
0: you feel like he'd been downplaying it or trying to be discreet about, you know, just saying like, yeah, I know her. And you didn't realize, because in the, I feel like in the show the nature of their relationship eventually comes up a little bit and it is they have a connection a real they real do, connection they do yeah they're really and they're close from actually. very different backgrounds
1: yeah it's um prior to us doing this he i wouldn't say he downplayed it it's just so you know when something's so incongruous it takes you like years to actually believe it like my dad is first of all he's like this arab guy in a if you grew up in the south and you're anywhere from the arab world It's just a strange, it's a strange, not always bad, but it's a strange thing. And so he has never fit in Tennessee. And he's not one of these people who hangs out with famous people at all. He's just a guy. He's just a doctor. But then suddenly to imagine him, this sort of outsider, hanging out with her, who is, she is Tennessee, right? She is the physical, musical, narrative embodiment of Tennessee, it just somehow doesn't fit in my brain i just so for years like he would mention that they talked on the phone and i'd be like yeah right <laughs> like i can't can't even conceptualize <laughs> how that could happen <laughs> and so i just didn't really believe it and then uh and then this happened and uh and then you know i saw them together in a room and i realized oh they have a friendship like you see it immediately they they are close
0: so did that help you Is it like you're interviewing a friend of the family, or does she go immediately into the Dolly who is interviewed?
1: Kind of both. So, I mean, uh, you know, just to be completely honest with you, I don't think she would have given me time had they not been friends. I think she initially did the project as a favor to him. And she gave me more time than she would have given anyone right off the bat. Dolly has done... I think I, I counted it up at one point. I was just to like mathematically account. She's been in the public eye for 60 years almost. And she's probably done two interviews a month through that time. So what is that? Like a several thousand interviews, maybe a thousand, like so many interviews. She is as media trained as they come. She does interviews in 20 minute bites. And then she charms the pants off of whoever it is that's doing the interview. And then is sort of just done, Right. But she sat down for me with me, and initially I remember we talked for 90 minutes solid. No, I didn't get a question in that first interview. But she went into her Dolly stories, and she is so charismatic and so transporting as a storyteller that then she sort of re- defaulted to that, and I just let her talk because I just kind of wanted to hear her keep talking. So as a consequence, after that first interview, I didn't think I had anything new and interesting to say about her and certainly not about the country. But then we went back one more time, and in the middle, we discovered that class. And so that class and then the second interview really sort of, for me, raised all of the issues that then became the meat of the series.
0: And at what point was this a show that you knew you were doing? Like, where does it shift into, oh, this is a show, here's how we're going to do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was slow and evolving, you know. After that first interview, I didn't think I had anything. After the second interview and the class, I thought, I was excited, but I thought maybe it's a two or three episode thing. And then it was interesting. I mean, I listened back to that second interview and I kept like hearing moments that flew by in the flow of the interview, but, but seemed so interesting at listening back. You know, there were moments where she casually referenced murder ballads, which is a whole genre of music I knew nothing about. And suddenly I was like, Whoa, wait, what? There's a song about a man Literally picking up a stick and beating his wife, like with a stick, and then throwing her in the river, and then her mother saying that to her when she was a little girl. Wait, what? Why would the hell would that happen? What is the song? Who is the woman in the song? Like you have all these questions, right? And so there were moments throughout that second interview where, where these, like, I think of them as wormholes opened up, and suddenly you're talking to musicologists and historians, and then entire worlds become visible that you didn't even know you didn't know about. Her biography is littered with those moments. And so um, as we were sort of processing that second interview and doing follow-up interviews just to get more context, the thing kept expanding, and it w- went from initially two or three episodes to four. I pitched it to WNYC, and I said, I think this is a four-episode thing. And then as we were going, we start to plot it out. It looks like it's going to be six and then seven and then, by the time we actually launched the show, I was pretty sure it was nine. But then we ended up adding two along the way. So yeah,
0: how many? When you launched the show, how many were done? Oh, how many were
1: done? Like done, done?
0: Or in a shape where you could quickly finish them?
1: So the way that I, that I ended up working, which I will never do again because <laughs> it was too hard, uh, was we. By we, I mean myself and Shimoli, I, my producer on the project. We had mapped all of the episodes out. So we had nine mapped. We had one and a half finished, like sounding good. We could hit play and put them out there. And I had others. We'd worked with another um, producer, Harry Fortuna, who had helped me sort of just craft the other seven in a really rough way. But they, you know, they were all like 20 minutes too long and none of the transitions were working. It didn't have any of the sort of sound or the spirit. That sort of essayistic layer that ended up coming into the series wasn't there. And so week to week, I would take these sort of large, unformed, too long builds and I would try and squeeze them down and re-edit them, sometimes make pretty radical structural moves, write my way through it, score it, and that all happened week to week, which was not the way that, <laughs> which was not the way to do it. It's not
0: the preferred.
1: I would you know, if I if I could repeat the process, I would um I would put a lot more time into the production of it. As a listener, I definitely had this experience of, you know, saying,
0: "Wait, there's so many things that." could or should be covered here. Like, it could go in so many directions. And then as the episodes came, thinking like, is he going to do one on that? Oh, here it comes. There it is. yeah. And some of the most amazing moments to me are aspects of Dolly that she resists that other people either layer onto her or she's had an impact on people in these ways. And I was curious, in the moments of interviewing her, how hard did you press on feminism how hard did you press on politics these places where she clearly doesn't quite want to go
1: yeah i didn't i never pressed too hard if anything i listened back to those interviews and i kind of wish i had been a little bit more not, not firm but a little more insistent about some of those things you know it's like they they were always there on the surface though i mean even in the first interview which i said was mostly her talking the one question i did manage to get in was you know do you consider yourself a feminist which I did not take to be a confrontational question at that moment because, as I was saying, like all of these people here in New York who just seen her in Queens just take it for granted that she is. And so I was like, oh, how do you feel about that, being from the South? I mean 9 to 5, like all the things I'm, that are like, in the show. She shows. wrote the anthem for working women that was the center of a movie that was literally about a union for working women. It is an overtly political film that is an overtly political song. So I didn't expect her to be anything other than overtly political. I know now she is famously apolitical. But still, I asked her, do you think of yourself as a feminist? And she recoiled in a way that really kind of caught me off guard. Um, and that was interesting to me. I didn't really press her at that moment because I felt like she was putting up a boundary at that moment, and I wanted to respect that. But... um. After that first interview, I didn't know how to think about that. But then we ended up talking to some people like writer Sarah Smarsh, who's written about this, talked to a lot of different people about the history of the South, the history of the women's movement over the last half century. And then it quickly becomes clear, oh, clearly this is a she's very shrewdly navigating a class difference that exists within the language of feminism. And like, I just need to say, like, who the fuck am I to say any of this? I don't know. But I'm, I'm just sort of like as a person who gathered these interviews that was my impression and so i went back to her several times on a lot of those issues and each time with a slightly more educated and nuanced question and she to her credit answered every single one you know i mean there were moments so so like in episode eight we talk about race right and uh this is the dixieland stampede yeah the, 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 the dixie stampede um which was a little bit of a kerfuffle around race and around the erasure, I should say, of black experiences around the Civil War. It's a sort of this rampant thing that happens in the South where you tell the Civil War as a kind of antebellum nostalgic thing that has zero to do with slavery. And interestingly enough, people in America, a majority of people in America, do not think the Civil War was fought for slavery, which is crazy to me that that is the case. But it just tells you like what this retelling of history actually does. It corrodes our actual sense of the truth. So I was asking her about all of this stuff, and and I asked her about it several times in several different interviews. And there was a whole point in the project where I was going to go into her high school experience because her high school was integrated, I believe, during her sophomore year. And... You look at her yearbooks and you see all white faces and then suddenly you see a few black faces. And there were black pardons that, came, that were there in, uh, in uh, I believe, her junior senior year. And I asked her all of these questions about that. And she, to her credit, she answered every single one. Now, at the end of the day, I didn't feel like our reporting was solid enough or interesting enough to really bring that in. And it would have raised so many questions. And I didn't, it didn't feel fair to her to just raise the questions without taking them somewhere. But, you know, even stuff wh- which could have been revealing in ways that she might not have wanted, she was super honest and open and generous with her time and always answered those questions.
0: That gets into the other part of the show that, you know, particularly hit me because I am from the South and I feel like there's a lot of complexity in how people feel about being from there mm. that's not often captured. It's sort of often characterized and not often fully captured and it's a real mixed bag and i feel like the class was so interesting yeah. because they were first of all very thoughtful uh, students yeah <laughs> like, yeah really uh and very reflective on that but you also grew up there so how did you feel being in the midst of kids today reflecting on you know changing their accents for instance oh my god yeah that moment was a
1: very like that really hit me me too me too like as you know, it's funny, like, that was the moment when I realized I had it all wrong, you know? And what I mean is, I left Nashville, and when I left Nashville, I ran away. And when I thought back about Nashville, I mean, my dad was still there, and I'd go visit. But when I thought back about that place, I would I would see it as this simple narrative of, like, an intolerant South that wasn't really ready to accept people who weren't of the place. and, And then... To go back and to sit at that class and to, and to talk to those kids, it was like it upended all my stories about the place I grew up. Because first and foremost, like those students were so smart and so nuanced and so thoughtful about what it means to grow up in the South. And not only that, they had all this shame. And, I, you know, if I think back on my experience, it never occurred to me that th- those other kids who I always thought were part of the place, could feel shame too about being from that place. They could feel shame for the way they talked. And and to a person, each of them told stories about consciously, methodically losing their accent. Their parents sitting them down and saying, you've got to lose your accent. It's so weird to have that conversation as a parent to a child being like, I don't want you to inherit this. This thing that is such a signature of this place that should be in many ways a symbol of pride, right? I don't want you to inherit this. And so they all told those stories, right? And it was, I don't know why. It's like one of those things where it, like one assumption gets blown up and then like a domino, it tips into another assumption and another assumption. And then suddenly your whole system of assumptions about a place get upended. And that's what happened in that class. And I realized I don't know if I know the South in the way that I thought I always did. I don't know. I know it's just one of those moments where I was like, shit, I need to rethink the South in addition to Dolly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd never thought about it. And I've gone through my whole adult life with people saying, why don't you have a Southern accent? Like I get asked that Mm -hmm. constantly. And it actually caused me to go ask my mom, why don't I have a Southern accent? Did she tell you stories of like trying to scrub it clean? Not intentionally, but she, both my parents are from Alabama and she was very insistent that I have proper grammar. I mean, I think the accent part was probably rolled into that. Like, you're not going to talk like the people that I grew up around. You're going yeah. to speak properly. Yeah. And there was a really serious emphasis on that. But the other aspect of it is, if you take abstracted and say, I, you hear a story about a parent telling a child, uh, I don't want you to have an accent, you would think that was an immigrant story. I mean, yeah. that sounds like an immigrant story. Oh my God, yeah. And you end up making this connection between your father and Dolly, which is very, it sort of comes up in the
1: show. How naturally did that evolve for you? It was, that was organic. That was super organic. I mean, I think I had, I was already in that space where I was questioning all of the things that I held as separate, right? We had already been thinking a lot about the musical origins of country music, right? We'd already encountered a person named Esther Konkara who uh, she's known as the Kenyan Dolly Parton. And we, were, we had done an interview with her, and uh, she had sang My Tennessee Mountain Home to us over Skype and claimed ownership of it in a way that was so interesting to me. I mean, she basically was super matter-of-fact, and she was like, well, look, we have hills out here. When I sing My Tennessee Mountain Home, I think about these hills outside of Nairobi, and I used to sit on those hills and look out and imagine my life when I left. And so for me, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about a future nostalgia in some way. And so, like after that Skype call, I was really thinking a lot about like what is Dolly's music? Who is Dolly's music for? Then um, Shima and I get lucky, right? We end up interviewing Dolly's nephew and bodyguard, Brian Seaver. He was the only member of the family that they made available to us. And he had never done a media interview before. And he was amazing. And just a real, I mean, he's a super badass. I mean, like, this is a guy who, who, in London, we saw him wrestle someone to the ground. We didn't put this in the series. But like, this is a guy who protects her day in and day out. And so he's like, you don't mess with Brian. And he's just very kind of like opinionated and like just a free spirit. So he'd never done an interview before, and he, he at that point, I don't think anymore, he was a chain smoker. And he's like, I want to smoke as we talk because I'm going to be nervous, so I want to do it outside. Hey, y'all want to go see the Tennessee Mountain Home? The point at which he said this, we were at Dollywood, and we had just looked at a replica of the Tennessee Mountain Home. And I thought that replica was all that existed of it. And, I, you know, on some level it's so disney that you're like, I don't think this is real. <laughs> yeah. She probably did grow up in a shack, but the shack as it's presented in these stories is probably like a little bit exaggerated. Yeah. And she herself in her autobiographies called herself a creative liar, right? So I didn't really super-duper trust that this was a real place. Suddenly he's driving us around the mountain up 20 minutes in elevation down a dirt road through a giant gate – to the actual Tennessee mountain home. And it first of all like that was like I felt like we hit the jackpot just as reporters, but personally when we got there and you walk out under this like really neon green moss that covers the entire property and you look at the thing and it's just right there on a on a hill looking exactly as it does at Dollywood, it is a tiny little gray shack and my, the first thought that hit me like a ton of bricks was that my God, it looks exactly like my dad's home in the mountains of Lebanon, like same dimensions, same basic structure. And he lives up in the mountains. So it was more or less the same elevation. Like it smelled kind of the same weirdly. And so I don't know, it was one of those moments I was standing there and having a little bit of a deja vu feeling. And I wasn't really sure how seriously to take that. So we took a tour and went back and it did cause me to want to interview my dad sort of a couple of days after that. And so I sat down with him and I said, this weird thing happened. Can I ask you some questions? And then we started to talk and um, he started telling me stuff I'd never, I never knew about coming from Lebanon and the pain of leaving and how he hears that in her music. So she somehow is singing his song too. And the way in which she is so loudly nostalgic for her home, she provides this kind of space for immigrants like him to hear their story in it, which was odd. And he told me all of these things about leaving that I didn't know and how all these stuff that I didn't include in the series because it felt too off the track of what we were doing. But, you know, I'd always taken him to be this guy who didn't think about his home because of the place we left was destroyed by a civil war. So the home that you had, it's not only not there physically, but like the spirit and the culture and the values of the place have been torn apart. It felt to me like they left all of that behind. But then, you know, as I was talking to him, he was like, no, no way. And he told me stories of going, like he would fly to see his brother who lives in Dubai, and they'd fly through Beirut. And he would take a taxi from the airport on layover, go into the mountains, park the taxi in front of his house, and just sit there for 20 minutes, and then go back to the airport. He told me stuff like that that I was like, I really? I had no idea. And he told me about when we came to America and how close we were so many times to going back, to the extent that there were four or five times, he said, where we sent all of our luggage back there, but then it disappeared, (laughs) and so we didn't go. Yeah, so it was like all of these stories came out that I didn't know, and it was crazy to me that somehow the chemistry between him and Dolly, between him and her music, his experience and her, and what she's singing about, was so much more nuanced than I understood. And uh, and then I went back to her. I was like, I learned all these things. Do you think of your, your music as immigrant music? And she was like, oh my God, yeah. And she started telling me this like idea of her her music, which is that like you take a song like "My Tennessee Mountain Home," right? And you just look at the lyrics. Hold on, I'm just gonna pull it up. Do you mind if I just take a second? No, go for it. Sitting on the porch on a summer afternoon, in the straight back chair on two legs leans against the wall. Watch the kids playing with June bugs on a string, and chase the glowing fireflies when evening shadows fall. In my Tennessee mountain home, life is as peaceful as a baby's sigh. Yada yada yada. Honeysuckle vine clings to the fence along the lane. Their fragrance makes the summer wind so sweet. And on a distant hilltop, an eagle spreads its wings. And a songbird on a fence post sings a melody. Like, it's so vivid, right? And she's taking this moment from her childhood that's, that she knows is gone. And there's something about that that is the immigrant experience. It's like you're desperately trying to hold on to the thing you left. And I heard from not just my dad, but so many people... That's what they love about her music, is that it's like the soundtrack to a life that's leaving, always leaving, but trying to hold something in your memory. So, yeah, I mean, that, that idea of Dolly Parton, and maybe country music in general as immigrant music, was super organic, and it felt like I I tumbled into it.
0: But your your work is not typically autobiographical like I I mean it's not like you're talking about your kids on the show all the time or like people don't necessarily know your background intensely from listening to you so did you struggle with deciding to put that you said you didn't put all of it in but to make that part of
1: the show I was a little nervous to do it it's not where I start with my stories I mean I you know I feel like I I'm part of that kind of this American life progeny of storytellers that try to tell stories in a personal way But I don't have any interest in, like, doing memoir, right? So when it came time to do those episodes, I was a little nervous, particularly because it's Dolly Parton. Like, I was really worried that people would be like, who the hell are you to talk about you in the middle of something about Dolly? I was worried that people would feel it was presumptuous. But at some point, you just have to speak the truth as you see it. And it just felt like everything in the reporting was leading us to that idea that this wasn't just a harebrained thing, that this was all about rethinking the world and the ways in which we divide up the world. And I had to be personal about it. I want to go back to the um that Dixie Land stampede,
0: the episode about race, because it raises a question that I also found in listening to More Perfect, mm. you know, the show about Supreme Court, where there's this question when you go into certain issues, like you have one about affirmative action and more perfect where it's the guy who's like initiated all the lawsuits to basically end the Voting Rights Act clauses and also end affirmative action. And in the Dolly Show, it's the Dixieland Stampede. And there's this question of editorializing is sort of like the general way to put it, but how strong are you going to, are you just gonna portray someone and something as it's happening and say, this is we want you to know about this listener, or are you going to try to come into it and explain or show that you think that this is wrong? Yeah. And I'm curious how you think about that in that context. Like there's one moment in there that that I really remember where you sort of maybe even interrupt a discussion about the Civil War and say the Civil War was about slavery. Like that's just in there. Yeah. And then that's yeah. just a fact. And then you move on. Right. And so how do you make those decisions not knowing who the listenership necessarily is?
1: Yeah. I mean that's – that is – isn't that, in a way, the question? In a way, I feel like it's the question of our, like, I think all journalists are struggling with that right now, particularly when you cover things like uh, race. You know, the something like the history of the Civil War. On some level, you have to, I mean, the, I think you have to approach every story you tell, no matter what, with empathy and with a deep appreciation for the fact that people will define truth in different ways. If anything, every story I've told for the last 10 years is about those epistemological car crashes, where you have two different ways of knowing the world, and you you hear someone or you are that someone struggling to manage those different realities, that to me feels like the most important work any of us can do right now. But there are certain things I don't want to be confu- that to be confused for saying there's no such thing as an objective reality. And if you go back to the Articles of Separation in the Civil War. Slavery is written all up and down on those documents. It's not a secret, right? Like the people who are seceding from the union said we're doing it because we want to preserve the institution of slavery. Like ba- any basic reporting will tell you that, right? So it feels wrong by, to pretend otherwise. So for me, I don't know. Like it just felt important to sort of say the thing you know. And it shouldn't be a political statement to say the Civil War was fought for slavery. That's not a political statement. Unfortunately, it is. In some areas of the South. For me, that's just a fact.
0: But then you don't necessarily go the step beyond that to say this show that the DAL universe is putting on that is a reenactment of mm-hmm. the Civil War at some level is wrong. Like it shouldn't exist. You're sort of playing out the story of what happened to it without necessarily saying that yourself.
1: Right. And and um, I feel like you're getting at something that's really important. And I'm trying to think of a, of a thoughtful way to To meet you there. Because uh, here's... Okay, let me just get highfalutin for a second. But this is literally what comes to mind. I got really into reading de Tocqueville's On America. And uh, this is in the 1830s, I'm going to say. He tours America. All of these, like, French people, these Europeans, were very fascinated by America and this thing called democracy. It was like, what the hell are they doing in America? They want the people to make the decisions? They must be nuts, but that's fascinating. Let's go see how they do it. So he does like basically a travelogue through America, through the South, through all these different regions. And he makes re- a series of really interesting observations about America. And one of them that I remember and I've taken very much to heart, in fact, he calls it uh, Americans have certain habits of the heart. And one of them was that at their best, they will identify with all of these different perspectives, but not give in to any one of them. And I think about that a lot as a journalist. I think about that as, uh, in terms of Dolly as a subject. Dolly herself is very de in that way. She identifies with every different segment of her audience but never gives in to any of them. I say to her, don't you think you're a feminist? And she recoils, except she's lived her life as a feminist. But she's not going to let me paint her into the narrative of her being a feminist. So she's going to identify with those segments of her audience that would call her that, but she's not going to let them call her that because she's got her own story, right? So there is some way in which we as journalists, I think, have to do that too. We have to relentlessly, empathetically identify with all the different parts of our world, but we can't give in to them on some level. So it would have felt like giving in to say the Civil War is an open debate as to what caused it. No, slavery is what caused it. So I'm not going to give in to that side. At the same time, I'm not going to over-identify with one of the other sides and say, and Dixie Dixieland Stampede is wrong. And I remember we sent that episode out early to a bunch of people, sort of sensitivity listeners, if you will. And there were people who were like, you're being way too easy on her. And I was like, I, yeah, maybe. But really, I think what you want me to do is to sort of like honor one side of the audience to the exclusion of another. And I, I can't do that. But I also can't t- say that something that this side thinks is untrue is, in fact, open for debate because it's not. So it's like that. I always feel like I think about de Tocqueville on those moments, that there's some balance you have to strike between what you believe about the world and also shutting those beliefs up long enough so that you can identify with what someone else believes. How
0: much do you, when you're approaching those issues, sort of trust a small group of people, your insights? A couple of producers to say, okay, I think, we, I think we're getting it right versus sort of playing the episode for a lot of people and saying, okay, does anyone see anything that we're missing here before you put it out? Because it feels like once it's out in the world in today's environment, if you get something wrong, you're going to hear about it really yeah. quickly.
1: Yeah. I sort of figured out a long time ago at Radio Lab that you have to do it in two stages. There's this sort of – when you're in that creative process where you don't know – if it's yet a thing and it's very fragile, there's a small group of people I will show it to. Uh, initially, it was just Shima and I working on it together. But then there was a we had four radio lab folks that had lent me their ears. And so a couple of days before the deadline, they would hear it. And then with some of the thornier ones, like the later episodes that got into race, we passed it around a bit broader than that afterwards to make sure that. Um, You know, people pointed out our blind spots and things that we should know about or notice that we didn't. And even then, you know, there was a moment where we talked about the etymology of the word redneck and someone took issue with us and wrote an article about how we got it wrong. So you still hear about it, you know, but uh, I do it in two stages. It's like kind of keep it very, very small for the first stage while you're just trying to birth the thing. And then as it's kind of about to sort of make its first noises, I get a little bit bigger group. Then you start to think about sensitivity listeners and that kind of thing if you're dealing with, like, a complicated thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, lab has been around that block a few times. We've bumped into some places where I kind of feel like we got it wrong. And so we sort of learned trial by fire that uh, you can't just trust your own instincts, you know? Yeah.
0: I remember the the Yellow Rain right. one. Right, And then the more recent one was the um, Shia LaBeouf thing. Yeah, yeah. Thing. And... Have you? I mean, the show's been around a long time, Radiolab, and I'm curious if you know. I was looking back at old shows, and it's like you know, you did a show on race in like 2008, like mm-hmm. you know, race and science and biological basis and the Human Genome Project and all that. And has your view evolved in terms of what those shows need to do and the controversy that they might engender? Because the controversy that a show engendered in 2005, it's just
1: a it's, it's just a different, different universe. Different, from different what universe. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's funny a show about race that we did at the very beginning. I don't remember exactly what was in that show, but I do know that the way that we proceeded to try and put that show together was about the intersection of science and race, right? We tended to see things at the be- in that first phase of Radio Lab as very much trusting in the scientific monopoly on truth, and there's something deeply noble to me about I mean, my mother has been studying one protein for 35 years. Wow. And I think that there's nothing more noble than that. She's trying to understand some of ba- basic science. And I love that. But I also have come to feel that it's not the only way to know what's real in the world. And uh, I think Yellow Rain was one of the first moments where I stopped trusting that science had a monopoly on the truth.
0: Can you give your capsule of what happened in that incident just so people
1: can follow it? Sure. I mean, this was a story that we were doing, if I remember correctly, it was a show about, I think it was called The Fact of the Matter. So it was a show about fact-finding and the Sisyphean struggle to figure out what is true and what is real. Um, And there was a series of stories in that episode, one of which was uh, a story about the prospect that chemical weapons were used in the mountains of Laos post-Vietnam, So the Hmong villagers there who had allied with the United States, um, when the the U.S. left, there were reports that uh, the Soviets had used chemical weapons on those people. And uh, this was sort of a serious allegation because the U.S. at the time used it to restart their own chemical weapons program. So scientists, very alarmed, Western scientists went over to the region to try and measure where their chemical weapons used. They... Felt, no, there were not chemical weapons used. Based on their measurements, it was bee shit, basically. It was like these bees would do a sort of an elaborate mating thing. They'd go up into the clouds, and then they'd rain down pollen, which could look like chemical weapons. So we told that story. Um, We felt like we had to interview somebody who was there. That interview ended up just blowing up on us. We talked to a a Hmong fellow and his niece who was translating, and they described... um, how it was, chem- there were chemical weapons used, and it was a long, long interview that got increasingly contentious, and it basically, uh, it ended in tears. Where it's like, "Why won't you believe us?" And I think we moved through that interview very differently now. Hmm. But at the time, we insisted on the science. We said the scientists say there was no chemical weapons, so therefore, there weren't. I don't know that that was the right stance to take, and I think it blinded us to certain truths that were in the room at that point, and uh, long story short, we felt like we had to put the interview out, like it would have been unethical not to, but uh, we misjudged just how much we would <laughs> be uh, yelled at for having done that. We looked like assholes, and rightfully. It became very interesting to me around Yellow Rain, moving forward, to... Almost the show became about epistemology in some way, to use a stupid word, but about different ways of knowing the world. And so the show really became the place where a scientific way of knowing bumps into lived experience or uh, identity, you know. And like from that point forward, I no longer – we barely ever tell stories where we simply trust one way of knowing to the exclusion of others. It really is the place, the stories are the place where they all kind of come smacking into each other. And so um, it's funny, like I think back to the first phase and the quintessential sound that we were always kind of going for was a whoa. Mm -hmm. It was like a whoa, wow surprise. And then 2012 on, it's more of a, "Uh, well, ah, it's like that sound. It's like struggle, right? It's the sound of struggle versus the sound of wonder. They're somehow adjacent sounds. They're not too far from each other, but that's kind of how we've evolved. And so if we did it now, I think we would do it where it would be much more confusing and much more complicated, whether it's two different versions of the science or whether it's like, I don't give a fuck what your scientists say. I know what happened to me. Right. So it's like my own experience is truth for me. Your scientists can say something else. like that's in so many ways the world we live in. Right. Mm-hmm. We all have our own truths that we carry around. And we refuse to relinquish. I was like, we need to get better at telling stories like that where you feel all the truths together and they're like duking it out. How do we do that story? And so I, we, we started to really I mean, as painful as that incident was. It was the moment I really leaned into it. And I was like, I think we got to we got to do more of that. And pretty much from that moment till now, every story, or almost every, has had something of that struggle.
0: I mean, I I sort of noticed that shift just kind of like looking back at the scope of stories. And at some inflection point, it went to a darker, more difficult, more complicated place.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember also just, I mean, it was one of these like restless things. I remember feeling like, man, we're always in the studio. We're just in the studio having these conversations and, like, we should be outside. We should be out in the world. There was just a sense that, like, we weren't getting our hands dirty. You know what I mean? It was partially the repetition. I remember, like, I kept finding myself in these situations where I was sound designing the sound of a neuron. (laughs) And there was a day where I was like, if I have to do this one more fucking time, I'm going to... Throw myself out the window, and so like there was that kind of thing happening. too. like
0: the uh, that was like the playing Freebird or something. Like yeah, let's get a new neuron. Do that neuron thing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it was like that. It was like that. So there was just a sense that we were repeating ourselves, and it was too clean. There's something too clean about our stories. It didn't feel honest, frankly. There's a way in which I think it felt more honest to be more confused yeah in our, in our stories, yeah. you know? and so that's where we that's where we went when you started, to what extent was did you
0: have a vision of what you wanted Radio Lab to be? Were you sort of like I have a a sound idea that I want to hear on the air versus I have a concept of a show that I feel like could run for five, ten years that would do x, y, z yeah,
1: I never had the second thing. I mean, if I had had a day to really think about it I might have, like, had grandiose ideas. But the circumstances under which the show began were so intense and so, like, go, 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 and it literally never stopped for, like, six years that the feeling looking back was six years in, really it was, like, ten years in, before you realize, oh, my God, we've made a thing, people are listening, and they see us as something that we need to start seeing ourselves as. Like, there was that, like but from the beginning till that point you're just literally trying to solve a problem every single week. What was the what was so intense about the the very beginning of it? Well, so began as a show called Radio Lab. Uh it sounded oddly like it sounds now because I had just gotten out of music school and I had all these like ideas about what I wanted to do with sound and um I I was thinking a lot about and sounding unfortunately like Ken Nordine, who's this uh I shouldn't say unfortunate cuz I think he's amazing but uh, he he's this like um he did this whole series called Word Jazz which was sort of this very experimental beat nick uh, way of doing audio stories. He did a whole series about color which is amazing. Different colors like little 2 minute things on each color. I I th- I thought about a lot about Gene Shepard who in many ways is the um proto Ira like these like wonderful like first person stories. Um I also had was really into uh Wells, wells Mercury Theater of the Air kind of stuff. So I wanted there to be theatrical elements. So I had all of these ideas. But uh, it started, it was in the wake of 9-11. They reformatted the entire schedule at WNYC. And there was this idea that like New Yorkers for the first time or Americans for the first time really want to know about their impact in the world. So my initial mandate was you've got three hours. I just want you to play documentaries from around the world about politics about culture whatever this will be a moment where we can sort of look out and literally between Michael Elsesser the program director at the time having that idea and me being on the air it was like 4 days like he literally had a brainstorm he was like go on the air i never for 3 hours for 3 hours i never hosted a show i barely was a journalist at that point i had done some freelancing for on the media and some other shows I'd worked for a year and a half at the next big thing, which was this cultural program in New York for a while. So I kind of knew my way around Pro Tools, and I knew how to, like do a reported thing, but it was I, I was so not ready for that. And so uh, I had to fill three hours every week, and literally they didn't have a place for me to work. And so um, what I would do is I would make it literally my basement in Brooklyn, and then I would work. Around the clock, right up until broadcast, like literally right up until broadcast, uh, like an hour before the show, I would burn the things onto CD, throw in my backpack, ride like hell over the Brooklyn Bridge on my bike, um, and then and then just like sprint into the broadcast studio and hit play on the CD seconds before it aired, and then I'd have to do the weather through the show. <laughs> so like that was my, that was Radio Lab at the beginning, and every week I had to fill three hours. It was insane. And, you know, I mean, you get these, like, 26-minute documentaries from Radio Netherlands. And then you put that with a 19-minute sound collage from Lisbon. And I'm like, ah, I've got 10 minutes left over. What do I do? And so I started doing essays and weird things to try and fill the gap. And so the show, my expression on the show was initially just to fill those 10 minutes. Mm. And then as it evolved over time, I began to take the first hour and I would do something interesting there and then the second and third hours I just put on a big bunch of docs and quickly intro and outro the docs but it was uh whatever like ambitions and creative questions I had was just like I would just try and like throw them into the first hour and uh thankfully so much of that stuff I think all of it has been lost to time <laughs> yeah yeah I couldn't I couldn't I'm so glad you couldn't because some of it is really painful <laughs> Um, it's really painful I think I have them saved on a hard drive somewhere at some point I'll I'll let other people hear them
0: that's really the that's the joy of being our age I think we're like roughly the same yeah, age yeah we're like,
1: right at the cusp
0: like all my print stuff that I first wrote that i kind of like I don't want that on the internet it's just gone like the yeah. magazine's gone the print's gone yeah now, now all of your mi-
1: all there forever 23 year old mistakes would exist forever this is the hell in which 20 year olds have to walk into is <laughs> that everything they say will be recorded forever um, but, yeah, so, like, I never had a real ambition on the show. I mean, the show came into the world with such, like, a giant amount of space to fill and no audience, no plan for it. They didn't really even pay me that much. Mm. Like, it paid me every so often, you know? So, like, when I actually got a salary, it felt like I won the lottery. I just was like, oh, wow. I was... And then when I finally got to hire a producer, I was like, oh, my God. this. I mean, that was already, like, four or five years in. And uh, well, you it was just you producing it for those. it was just me producing year, it for so. the first few years. Robert and I met, and then we began to kind of sort of experiment together bits and pieces for a year or so. This is Robert Krolwich, uh, Robert Krolwich, yeah.
0: Our listeners, I believe,
1: would know, but just have to make sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and so I don't know, it really wasn't until six or seven years in, I don't, I don't even know how long before we began to have dreams like, oh, we could be on a lot of radio stations and we could... And then podcasting happens in 2006. Podcasting 1.0. And then it was like, oh, we could be around. We could be archived. People could listen to us and then all the stupid sound things that I do make sense suddenly. So then your your idea of what's possible grows from there. And then and then now it's like, here we are. We have big plans. But uh, it took me a long time to get to a place where I even felt like I had permission to have plans. and And the
0: evolution to... I assume the evolution to having more producers and then suddenly you've got spin-off shows that you're doing and shows that are Radio Lab, but they're special multi episode things, you become a kind of manager. You go from being the producer of every show by yourself, tinkering with every sound, to being the manager. Mm-hmm. So how has that transition worked for you? Like how do you like being that person who can't touch every detail or do you still touch every detail?
1: Uh varying degrees. No, I don't touch every detail. Most of the time, I'm just sending a lot of emails with notes to people or voice memos. Hmm. A lot of voice memos. Occasionally, when we're shorthanded, I'll jump into a session. Like, for instance, with the uh, the series that's on right now, The Other Latif, uh, we're so shorthanded that I'm basically finishing, like, being the editor and sound designer and mixer on a few of those episodes. Oh, wow. But then there are a couple in that flow that uh, I'm really just giving notes. So... It's funny our process kind of ebbs and flows and shifts depending on what's needed and uh I think it's important that I don't touch everything right now. I'm really lucky. I've got this crew of people who are so smart and talented. You know, and it's important that people who are really talented stay and see this as their platform right now. And so a lot of what's happening right now is me figuring out how to continually be restless in all the ways that I've always been restless, but also allow other people a chance to step forward and kind of own the spotlight a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so Radiolab, it's really in the last five or six years, it's gone from this duet, this Robert Jad thing to um, a collective, you know, it's like a group now and people have their own relationships with Latif and with Molly and with Pat and with Simon And it's, like, everybody, and with Annie and Matt and all the amazing producers, like, they have their own thing now. And my success or failure depends on them feeling excited. You know what I mean? And I know that. So I try not to meddle. At the same time, I know that I've got to do things like Dolly for myself, but also as a way to inject newness back into the Radiolab sphere, in a way. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm thinking about these days is, like, how do I organize this existence? So that they feel inspired, and I feel inspired and how
0: much do you have you kind of very actively tried to imbue those people with whatever you would say the radio lab approach is? There's a certain sound that's not just your voice and robert's voice it's a way that you work with sound, and you've mm-hmm. you've talked a lot in the past about words as music and how you yeah. you, you yeah. play with that how much do you kind of train people up on what that is or rely on them to kind of hear the
1: old shows and then have their own version of that? I mean, I wish we were better at training people, frankly. I think it's one of our weaknesses. But we talk a lot about it. And there are a lot of these ideas and principles that we have about how we edit, like how we differ from, say, This American Life or some of the more more written ways of telling stories. I I don't know if that's a fair characterization. But um, we talk a lot about that. We've Architected our process so that it's much more spoken. Like you, if you look through our corridor, you'll see everybody's got a mic at their computer. So uh, we encourage people to speak rather than write, hmm. and then cut the speech and then figure out. So there, there are things that we do that I think people internalize and they take on. And then um, some people, they, I mean, these days, what's cool is people show up and they know the show. You know, they've like grown up with it, and so you don't have to explain a lot of that stuff. They get it. So, yeah, there's it's a combination of stuff. But we, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, it's weird. Like, we've been doing it for 18 years. And with Robert leaving, which is um, a truly sad event for me personally, um, but it also puts us, interestingly, at this weird beginning stage again. Like, we're back at the beginning, which is really – it's like how often do you do something for that long and then you're back at the beginning? It's kind of cool in a yeah. way. And so – we're having a lot of conversations right now about, like, who are we as a show and what are the things that we want to put into our stories and what stories are ours and what stories aren't. So we have a lot of the conversations that are distilling some of these things that w- that we all kind of know implicitly. So we have, like, we just went through a mission statement exercise, right, trying to write our own mission statement. Um, did you have one before and you're looking for a new one or you did not have one previously? I had my own kind of internal ones. But then there was a moment where we looked at the staff and we're like, oh, okay, so Robert's leaving and half of these people have been with me for a long time and half of them are super new. Everybody's got a slightly different idea of what they're doing at the show. Maybe we should all have the same idea that's expansive enough to include all that diversity. So, yeah, it's like we're trying really hard to actually make it uh, an intentional thing. Um, It feels like we have to at this point because my God, have you seen a number of podcasts that are out there? <laughs> well,
0: I did want to get into that, uh, that aspect of it, which is that I feel like I was watching old interviews with you and, and talks that you gave. And I feel like more than 10 years ago, you articulated in this very lovely way in some interview or another how audio is an intimate medium. And now, like, audio is an intimate medium, I'm using air quotes, is like literally like a cliche among oh, audio trouble. producers yeah. that, like... Marketing people are using in conversations about like investment banks having a podcast. Yeah, I know. It has grown up around you in this way. Like, do you think about the business part of it? I mean, people are, entities are backing dump trucks full of money up to people's houses uh, to do the thing you do right now.
1: (laughs) I do think about it a lot, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm good friends with a lot of people who who have had the dump truck moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do, we're like, damn, that's, well, you were just, a, you may have had the right idea at the right time. Um, and more importantly, you took the right risk at the right time. Um, I, I don't know, like at the end of the day, I kind of dig that public radio is still my home. You yeah. know? Like there's some way in which the late stage capitalist gold rush that is happening to podcasting in some weird way pushes me deeper into to public radio. It feels like a, it reconnects me to the mission of the whole thing. I dig the freedom that you have in public radio. You can just do something because it matters, you know, or you can just do something because it's so damn delightful that it just needs to be done. Yeah. And if you, all you're thinking about at that point is making yourself happy, making your audience happy, you know, and that's it. And, uh, there's something cool about that to me.
0: Yeah. I want to come back around to, you've touched on a couple of times, like, feeling like your interest is flagging or you want to go in a different direction. I mean, listening to the show for many years, that's always intrigued me. Just like, how do you maintain this level of curiosity? Partly just because you and Robert in particular on, in the show, have such energy and such enthusiasm for what you're presenting to people that... It's hard for me to envision you thinking like, ah, I don't I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So I'm interested in
1: how you've maintained that over so many shows. Yeah. I mean, there was a moment when I felt like I couldn't, you know, in 2016, I took a long break because I, I kind of thought I was done. I thought I was sort of burnt out. So I, I'm always flirting with like six stage burnout because the part of the restlessness is that you kind of want to keep trying things that are a little bit too hard. And then you get yourself into, like, really bad situations, which I do. Like, if I have a professional Achilles heel, it's that the process and the way we staff and resource things are never up to the thing we want to do. You mean the ambition of... The ambition of, of it, the, yeah. The
0: time of people hours it should really the take. The people
1: hours it takes. And then you end up at, like, 4 in the morning, you know? And you're like, why am I awake at 4 in the morning again? And you get And you start to just... That was and that's great when you're twenties in your twenties, but then you get to be mid forties and you're like, this is actually really a problem, <laughs> and I need to be an adult right now. Because you got to be up at seven. I, yeah, because you, you, you you've got kids, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't. And so, but yet I still work that way on occasion, and it, and uh, I've always been right at that edge of burnout. And in 2016, I did, you know, but it's what, what was interesting about that break was that I kind of came back and I was like, all right this is the moment when I start to make this make sense for me and it has to make sense for everybody else too. Um, I've got to just step out of the room a lot more and make more space for the people who are, who would otherwise leave the show. I mean, if you look at public radio writ large or Gimlet, for example, like we staffed early Gimlet and, and, uh, these are people who come through, they learn a lot and they go off and they make shows of themselves, which on some level is how it should work. But I also like at a certain point was realizing I need to make the space for those people to want to stay and to want to make their name on my show mm-hmm. because it's not just my show anymore, right? And that's literally what's happening now is that it, it is like Latif has been narrating a series for six episodes. My voice is nowhere in it, but my voice is everywhere in it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And like that for me is the, new definition of it. And we're going to do a lot more of that. And I just had, that makes sense for me too, on some level. Does it stop the 4 a.m. nights or is that mostly, inevitable? Mostly. Asking for myself. They become uh, not the norm. Now we have an all night or a month maybe. And not even, you know. And more often than not, like you're working until midnight, and which is like whatever. That's just like, that's like table stakes. <laughs> You know, if you're, like, doing production, you're just going to be up till midnight. So, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So, this is one that's maybe
0: putting you too much on the spot, but I have, like, Radio Live episode that's, like, my perfect episode. Are there ones you've created that you've said to yourself, we'll never beat that, or Hmm. this is the epitome of what we're going for from any of these shows? More perfect? We haven't really talked about more perfect that much, but from any of these are there ones that you look at and say like ah that's our one we can always turn to and say that's what we're trying to do
1: Hmm. i mean there there are moments where i feel like we we hit it right i wouldn't go so far as to say that's what we're trying to do i always feel like that should be kind of out of reach in some way but uh i remember we did a thing about it was based on sherry fink's reporting about katrina and uh It's not, like, a typical thing for us, like, in terms of topic or... But I remember the way that we produced that felt as cinematic as we'd ever done without sound design. Like, it was not a sound design-heavy thing. Hmm. But in in the writing and in the pacing and in the composition of it, it felt like a movie. And I remember hearing that and being like, yeah, that's it. Like, just on a basic level of craft, I feel like we hit some high in that moment. I think about a show like Words, you know, which... As a listener, like, I want to feel certain things from a story or from a set of stories. And I remember that show made me feel all the things. I checked all the boxes. I felt inspired. I felt wonder. I felt challenged. I felt disturbed. Like, all the things happened in that moment. So I have moments like that. I don't know that there's anything that I would point to and say that's what we're going for in its totality. Just because, like, i such a moving target right now. I don't know what we are from one day to the other.
0: Yeah, we're we're like a week or two out from your show with your like last show with Robert Colech airing this sort of goodbye show. Yeah, so yeah. It feels like it's a it is that moment.
1: It's that moment where I can't really predict too far in advance what we're gonna be. Um it's really like what all of these people in that room over there wake up and wanna think about. It's as simple as that, you know. So it's out of my hands on some level. But uh, yeah, the stuff, I, I look back and I think there were some things we made that, like I remember when we first, when we made the, um. this is so early on, but like uh, the Rite of Spring thing that we did. We did a Rite of Spring dis- deconstruction that tried to marry what happened with the Rite of Spring to the biological basis of consonants and dissonance in your ears and in your brain. It's a thing we'd never do anymore. It was like mm. um, the science of it was way too simplistic. <laughs> but I remember the way that we used sound and the way that we married music with science, with narrative. I just remember like the feeling at the end of that was like, oh, that that's new. I think we did something new there. So I have those kind of like um, impressions. But uh, I don't know. What's your... You said you had a one. What's yours? Uh, Lucy. Oh, interesting. There's a one
0: part of that story and the way that that story is told. Mm. I've talked about it more than any other like audio thing I've ever heard. What Just is, with other people. It's the part where, so I don't know if we have to tell the whole story. People should go listen to it. It's my favorite radio lab. But um, the woman goes to live on the island with the chimpanzees that are being like released and she's living on this isolated island with them and like the idea you would think is like they're in a contained area and she's living somewhere but then, the thing that makes more sense is like she lives in a cage basically, mm. and they live wild. And there's something about that moment. Oh wow! It's yeah. prompted so much discussions that I've had with people, and like, I don't know, what would it be like? And just Oh, interesting. And then what happens to the Lucy? It's just I don't know. It really got to me.
1: Wow, that's cool. Really, I mean, I that's don't know really how old cool. that's. It's probably it's like ten years old at this point. Yeah, maybe I think so, eight, yeah. Or, eight or ten years old. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel really I, I feel fondly about that one. I remember like, I can still see the Pro Tools screen in my mind where I was making that story. And that's wild. Well, then, right, then last question: Like, how does it feel to have created
0: those? Like, you created that moment in my mind. That's it's just stuck in there. Like, it just comes out sometimes. I just think about it sometimes. And how does it feel to have created those moments? I mean, for how many people? Millions of people. I
1: don't know, it feels like it's almost, I don't know. I, I don't, it's its, surreal, it's like the greatest honor in some level, but it also doesn't feel real, you know? It's, uh, do you know that feeling in January? It's like the January feeling where you're just, things are all happening too fast and like people are walking by and they just kind of go shoo, across your field of vision and everything happens You're a little bit dissociated from it in some way. And it feels a little bit like that. It feels simultaneously like it's stuck in that for me and it's also the antidote to that for me. Everything I've ever done in radio, it's to try and get through that feeling of like really connecting with the world, really connecting with other people, making actual meaning out of this short time we have on the planet and then giving that to someone. Hopefully they have it too. If they don't, you know, you shrug. But... The thing you're trying to fight through always is that weird sense that you're just watching a movie of your world, you're not in it, and so when you say that, it makes me feel like I'm like, fuck, that's great, like that's exactly what I'm going for. But there's also a level of it which doesn't feel real to me, you know. It's um, I know it's just it's an unsatisfying answer, but that's kind of
0: no, nah, not for me. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having I me. really this appreciate was, it. This was awesome. That's all for this week's Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Jad for hosting me over at WNYC and for being so generous with his time. And thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Marina Clementi, and as always to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We will see you next week.